Hey, welcome back to the Forward Podcast. It's Lance, your host, each and every week. My guest this week is Phil Kogan, most famously known as the host of The Amazing Race. Been on network TV for, gosh, I don't know, more than 25 seasons. Uh, really, really interesting guy, interesting conversation. Loves to ride. Most of, the, most of our talk focused on his new documentary called La Ride, where he went back and rode the same course as much as he could. Obviously, the roads in France have changed, but the same course as the 1928 Tour de France, 3,300 miles. Keeping in mind, my friends, the current versions are around 2,000 miles. So he went and uh, found the night, you know, a circa 1928 bike with another buddy of his, Ben, and uh, and they rode the route. It's it's a pretty interesting film. It's going to be in theaters. They're doing like a mass screening this week. 150 theaters across the country coming out. Uh, that'll be tomorrow. So check online La Ride L E space R I D E um, for Phil's ride with his buddy. Uh, the other interesting thing we talk about um, is the, the eight years he spent as a young boy in uh, in Antigua. And obviously uh, that country, Antigua and Barbuda, were massively hit by Hurricane Irma. So he's super involved in trying to help, especially the island of Bar- Barbuda, uh, rebuild and, and get their lives back to uh, back to normal. Um, so before we get to Phil, a couple things. One, uh, registration for the Texas 100 is open. Go to wedosports.com. Uh, what else? Houston Astros. Who would have thought? Game seven, winning the World Series in L.A. My God. Congratulations. You talk about hurricanes. You talk about people uh, and communities that, uh, that need things. Boy, I mean, how about that for that city? What a boost. And uh, so congrats to, to everybody in Houston. You know, I used to be really critical of Houston, as you regular listeners know, uh, but, you know, now I won't be. Well, for a variety of reasons. Somebody actually remarked the other day that I've been I've backed off on my Houston criticism, which is true. Uh, two more things, two last things. Number one, thanks to everybody for coming out to the Chad Young ride last weekend in Nash in Nashville, uh, just outside of Nashville. Chad was uh, was such an amazing uh, young man, uh, great on the bike, but even better off it. Uh, Nate and Johnny Brown put on a ride. It was great to see Chad's parents and so many of his friends and loved ones there. Uh, and then to all to the hundreds that came out for the ride, uh, you're legends. So thank you for doing that. Thanks for supporting that cause. Last thing, uh, coming out Wednesday, I did a, a role reversal. I went on somebody else's podcast. Actually, I've been uh, that's happened a couple times here recently, but this week, this Wednesday, check out my buddy Aubrey Marcus's podcast. You can find it on iTunes or all the normal places. He's the founder of On It O N N I T, the gym that I work out in. But he also uh, has a has a really great podcast. So he and I jammed for about forty five minutes. I loved it. I enjoyed it. I think you guys will too. Check it out. That's coming Wednesday. And then the only other one that I've done recently, uh, role reversing, was Rich Rolls. Which, uh, uh, Rich, if you're listening, let me know when that's coming out so I can tell the peeps. All right, guys and gals and everybody, any questions, comments, send me an email, theforwardpodcast at wedosport.com. Enjoy Phil Kogan.
Well, Phil, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I it, I never start my interviews with a serious question. Well, that's good. But until today. You want to ask me what I had for lunch, don't nope. you? No. No? You already told me that before we went on, on the air here. But I do want to ask a serious question, and I hope you don't get mad at me and leave. But um, have you done your 100 push-ups today yet? No. Okay. No. Um, Drop down and give us at least 20. I... <laughs> Yeah, no, I I, uh, I normally do them at night, uh, and every now and again, if I do, I do some cross training on the on the beach in the soft sand, and um, I have one of those Belgian bags. Have you ever seen one of those Belgian bags that they use? That wrestlers use them. They have like hand grips all over them, and huh. they they weigh. Oh, maybe yeah, 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 yeah. I use that when I'm hiking or doing some resistance stuff or running stairs, and uh, I do burpees with those on the soft sand, and I I do push ups with those. I do all the things that you're not meant to do as a cyclist, right. building your upper body. I, that's what I do. Right. I, I think, I think some, some cyclists, if I'm not mistaken, I think they actually used to put their, their is, it, is it true that they, some of them would put their arms in slings to like get muscle atrophy or like waste their arms away? Is that true? <laughs> I mean, it's certainly I, Andy Schleck used to look like he had like atrophied arms. <laughs> No. But yes, 100 a day, Lance. That's what I do. 100 push-ups a I read, day. I read that in Men's Journal that you do 100 a day, and you've done it for 10 years. I haven't missed since I turned 40. I just turned 50, so I'm going into, what I, I guess, what, 365,000? Is that right? My math's yeah. not great, but somewhere right. around there. Well, yeah, but it's been a few months since your birthday, so we're past that. But yeah. what do you, just, you can't do 100 at a time. I can. Uh, but you, can sit, you can drop down and do 100 straight push-ups. Uh, yeah, on a good day, yeah. I, wow. I, I normally do. I, I cannot do that. You could. No. But, well, it's not like it happened overnight. I mean, I've had 10 years practice. <laughs> right. No, but my dad, my dad was a beast of an athlete. I played rugby. And when I was a kid, he used to get my sister and I to sit on his uh, shoulders and do push-ups. So I figure if my dad could do it with my sister and I sitting on his back, I got to be able to do 100 with nobody on my back. Yeah. Good I beer, by the way. I don't know what this is, but it's it's... Are we allowed to say we're drinking beer? We are. The, 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 the listeners of this show are very used to me talking about alcohol, drinking alcohol, okay. and actually drinking alcohol. Some of the best podcasts, whether it's Jesse Itzler or Eric Burns, have been you know not three sips in, but mm -hmm. more like you know four vodkas in. I mean, they've been good. Well, you didn't offer me vodka when I came <laughs> in here. So I, I, I mean, I'm happy to take one, but I, I didn't know that was an option. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like a shitty host now. But yeah, no, you can, you can, you can look, you can say whatever you want on uh on this podcast you can talk about whatever but i was worried that because the guys that work in the office with us they or they always get the, like this weird hippie beer like i drink like miller light yep that's which the listeners are going to be booing me but weasel know, piss we'd call that weasel piss down yeah. down on new zealander well i'm yeah new zealander we do have an i have i did bring an australian today this is sort of unprecedented for a new zealander and an australian to be together but but this beer is not bad no, and I got to say their little tagline that says is what that's called Mon Montucky, but it says the official unofficial beer of Montana. Like that's pretty, that's pretty great. Yeah. So whatever. And we're in Austin, Texas. Love it. Cheers. Have you ever, have you ever been here? Mm-hmm. My film uh, La Ride, retracing 1928 Tour de France, was here for South by Southwest this oh, year. Oh, was. Yeah. You know, I never go to South by Southwest because it's my kid's spring break, so I've never. I've never participated. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. I went over to your bike shop and uh, I saw this group that were about to leave on a ride. 
And I wanted to tell him that the film was screening. So I came running up to this guy. He was about to take a ride out at like four o'clock. And I came running up to him and said, hey, I just, you know, do you mind if I tell everybody about my film? And the guy, I don't know if he, he recognized me from TV and thought that I was trying to do some kind of like news story or something. And he was like, uh, dude, you know, we're just, we're just doing a ride. So I wasn't able to tell the, the group. He was very, very protective. You I was know like, what? I was like, dude, I'm just, I just want to tell you about this film. He goes, hey, you know, these guys are all out here. They're professionals and, you know, I'm sorry. That is such a cyclist. That is such a, just, that is. I was like, I just I want can't. to tell you about this film. I busted my ass on it. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we talk about the film, Low Ride, which, which I watched the other day, uh, which is just amazing. And we talk about amazing race. And I, I'm just going to confess, I don't watch TV unless I watch sports yep. or news. Um, but I want to talk about now, because as I started to look at your life and read about you and, and, and dig into your stuff, I come across your website, which is now, right? Which is noopportunitywasted.com. And I, I just, I, you know, I was looking at, by the way, there's a couple of these links that we got to work on that don't, they don't. I need to do some work. Yeah. yeah I've been got, traveling too much. Okay. Got, yep. Maybe Andrew can do it, but yeah, you get to this, to this page where it talks about no opportunity wasted, which I guess to me really is a way of life for you. It seems like, or your mantra, or your your you know, you know, it's like it's what you go by. And it talks about the beginning, and I, I was shocked that that what happened to you when you were nineteen years old on one of your first shoots, scuba diving was involved, and I'll let you take it from here. But the, I was blown away with the the terror that you must have felt being stuck there. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I'm from New Zealand, even though I've got this mixed, mixed up accent. Um, oh, we'll get to that later. Uh, yeah, much to the chagrin of a lot of New Zealanders. Exactly. They're like, they, they say, you sound so American. Yeah, and then when mom, I'm here, everybody like, says, you sound so New Zealand. So I'm mid Pacific or something, I don't know. But anyway. Um, Hawaiian. Yeah, somewhere in the, I'm somewhere out there, close to Hawaii. Anyway, um, yeah, so I started in television really early. I started when I was 18 and um, I started behind the camera actually. I had this real interest in photography, still do. And um, I was a film camera assistant just as they were transitioning from film into video in the mid 80s. And, uh, and then one day I was given an opportunity to host something just for a practice in a studio practice uh, session for a director. And this producer saw me interviewing somebody and said, hey, have you ever thought about being on television? doing some hosting work. And um, I had done a lot of theater when I was a kid, a lot of improv theater, did a lot of theater through high school. And I said, well, I have an interest in performing and I played the violin as a kid. And um, I said, but no, I hadn't really thought about it. He said, would you want to try out for a show? So I ended up on this network show at 19 years old where people would write in and get the three hosts to go out and do things. So I want to see Phil, you know, skydive or... Uh, there would be some crazy thing that had just happened that, that had just come out and they would we would go out and basically beta test whatever it was. So there was this Russian shipwreck, 22,000 like tons. civilized version of Jackass. Yeah, it was exactly exactly right. And this is 1987, somewhere around there. Right. And um, ex that's that's a good way of putting it. It was, you know, <laughs> I was on a Sunday night. It was a family show. And they, they wanted uh, somebody to go where they wanted me to go dive this 22,000 ton Russian cruise liner. And um, it's about 120 feet down, very cold water in the Marlborough Sounds. Uh, this Russian captain, they think he was drunk or something happened where the ship sank. All these people got off, thankfully. Some people have died, had died since then diving on this thing. 
And <clears throat> we were the first to film on it. And in those days, we were shooting film, not video. We didn't have, it wasn't in the day of GoPros. And uh, I got separated from the crew with my diving buddy. And after going through the labyrinth of this ship and not wanting to tell the guy that I'm tremendously claustrophobic, I found myself deep in the bowels of this 22,000-ton shipwreck in the dark. Mm. Uh, and he left me to go find the crew, but I didn't know why he left me, and there was a current coming through the ship. And when he left, he left with the light. I couldn't find my light. By the time I found my light, I'd stirred up all this silt. I'd let go of the table. I was in this bull room. This ship was on its starboard side. I was completely disorientated, and I just had a major panic attack. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having one listening. Yeah. And uh, I really thought that was it, and I, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be lost in, the, in this shipwreck and how stupid and uh it was a real moment of reckoning because when you're 19 you don't think you're gonna ever die right. you think you're invincible that's right and i really did think i was invincible until that moment and obviously i got through it and the first thing i just remember going i was up on the ship i remember looking up at the blue sky and i was like holy crap um you know this is not a, a dress rehearsal i gotta i gotta live the, the best life i can so i i wrote down everything I wanted to do in my life before I died. And I've been living off that list, which is a pliable list, which keeps chopping and changing ever since. So for the, for the listener, cause I, I got, I have to ask more questions. Cause I <clears throat> like, like what happened to the breadcrumbs when you were going mm -hmm. um, into the darkest part of the ship. But so here's your list that, uh, that you did that night and you wrote it on the back of a, a, a brown paper bag. You said, number one, I'm going to go back into the sunken ship. Yeah. That's like getting back on the horse. You know, you know the list, but I'm, I'm reading the list for yep. the listeners. Uh, number two, dive the world's largest underwater cave. Mm -hmm. Number three, hand feed sharks. Number four, climb Mount Everest. Number five, walk on the wing of a tiger moth airplane. Mm -hmm. Number six, learn how to barefoot water ski. That one's pretty chill, I gotta say. Number seven, go bobsledding in Calgary. I saw it on the Olympics. I had to try it. Number eight, scuba dive on the Great Barrier Reef. Number nine, set a world record for bungee jumping, which you eventually did. Yep. Uh, number 10, go to the top of an erupting volcano. Number 11, get in the ring with a professional fighter. Number 12, fly on a rocket into outer space. Haven't done that yet. <laughs> but all the others you did? Pretty much, yeah. Um, I, you know, I had a chance to go climb Mount Everest, but by the time the opportunity came up, I, I had a, a child, and, and I just thought, you know, it's probably the most selfish thing I could do. It's a long process. And, and, and that initial list that I wrote was a very selfish list. Right. I was 19. Right. You know, it was uh, all about me and what I wanted to do for me. And I guess just becoming a, a father, a young father, I have now a 22-year-old daughter, wow. um, just getting older and, and uh, your priori priorities change, and now much more about trying to do things for other people. And one of the goals was to raise a million dollars for MS, um, which I achieved riding across America a few years ago. Which was the ride, not <clears throat> they ride. But the exactly. Ride, right? Yeah, I'm not very imaginative with the names of things, but yeah, that was a goal that we set out to do. My wife and I sponsored a, uh, an amateur cycling team in Santa Monica, which led to us running a, a professional women's cycling team for a number of years in the U.S., cool. um, which was actually called, uh, uh, it was uh, now, now in Nevadas for MS. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, it's just the, the list has changed and so evolved. So um, for the listener, here's the list now. Yeah. Uh, this is off your website. So this is 31 years later, roughly, where you write a new list, right? Mm -hmm. Number one, write the book. No opportunity wasted. 
Number two, number two, produce the now, which is no opportunity wasted, television series. Number three, make a difference in someone's life. Number four, climb Mount Cook with my dad. Number five, travel into outer space. Number six, be a ball boy in the U.S. Open. Number seven, take a child who's never been out of their zip code to the fields of Nebraska and create crop art. Number eight, take my daughter Ella to La Tomatina, the world's biggest food fight. Number nine, have a gourmet romantic dinner with my wife, Louise, on the top of an erupting Stromboli volcano. Number 10, take Oprah Winfrey skydiving or something like that. She deserves it. She put me on her show. Number 11, put a golf, this is crazy, put a golf ball across the entire country of Scotland. Princess, honestly, I have no idea why I want to do this so badly. Yeah, well, um, just the, the the putting a golf ball across Scotland. I met a uh, a guy who was a whiskey taster. Um, he he was a forty year old accountant, hated his life. Came home on his birthday, sat down in his favorite chair. His wife put, poured him a glass of whiskey, and he was depressed. He's wearing a brown suit. He's an accountant. She says, "Jeremy, what's wrong?" He says, "I hate my life. I'm an accountant. I'm wearing a brown suit. I don't want to do this for my life." She said, "Well, what do you want to do?" And he said, "I want to drink alcohol, and I want somebody to pay me to do it." And um, she said, well, why, why can't you do that? And he said, well, who's going to pay me to drink? Well, he now works for Glenn Livett. Yeah. And I was doing a profile piece on him. He was sort of like a, what I would call a now person, a person who changed their life from so-called ordinary to something extraordinary. Anyway, he had a, a, a 12-year uh, bottle of Glenn Livett, and we kind of got stuck into the bottle a wee bit. And, um, and we started brainstorming ideas, and he said, you know, you've got to come to Scotland. We've got to do something in Scotland. So I was like, okay. So we started brainstorming an idea, and I said, I'm going to jump out of a plane in a kilt, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a golf ball out the window of the plane, and I'm going to follow it skydiving, because I'm um, skydive qualified, and I, I'm going to follow the golf ball out, and wherever it lands, I'm going to putt it across Scotland. So we started brain, brainstorming this idea. He's like, you're going to put the golf ball across Scotland? I said, yeah. So five years later, I was doing a story in England about the world's uh, beard and mustache competition. And we had a few extra days before we had to shoot another story for, uh, this was for CBS. I said, let's go to Scotland and we'll put the golf ball. So I went up there. <clears throat> I got a seven iron. I went to, um, uh, it was, it's right on the, on the West Coast, but where a lot of Americans have, um, have came to America. And I called up the mayor and I said, I'm going to putt a golf ball from, from your town all the way out to, um, to St. Andrews. And then I'm going to meet up with some locals on the 18th and finish at St. Andrews on the 18th. So uh, the mayor turned up with a bunch of guys playing the bagpipes. And, and I started putting this golf ball across Scotland, which was 30 miles a day, tapping the ball, 12,000 shots. By the time I got to St. Andrews, I was, my legs were absolutely fried. I was like, my knees were all wrapped up. They were all swollen. I, I stupidly wore golf shoes for 32 <laughs> miles a day, four days in a row. Anyway, we turn up at St. Andrews on the 18th, and these three locals are there. They've all got their big berthas, and I had a seven iron. And I'd just been chipping away for, for uh, you know, four days with the seven iron. It was all gouged out. I don't know how many golf balls I lost. I putted the ball right down the middle of, of Sterling Castle. And uh, I hit a horse at one point. I hit a car. I hit a house. I sprayed the golf ball all over <laughs> Scotland. And every night we'd stop at a Sounds pub. Sounds like my golf game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And every night we'd stop at a pub, and I'd take the ball, and I'd plunk it in the middle of the table, and we'd all sit around and have drinks with the locals. Anyway, we'd turn up. I'd play uh, a tee-off at the, at the 18th. And this big crowd had turned up because it's like 
oh my God, there's some crazy guy putting a golf ball across Scotland. So I lined up, I squared up the seven iron and, and hit it as hard as I possibly could. And, uh, had a good drive. I put it way back in my stance. I had a good drive. The ball flew way down the middle of the fairway, which was great because there was a crowd there. And I had a backpack on. I forgot to take my backpack off. Uh, and I had my kilt on. And now everybody's crowded around the green. And I was like, all right, I just got to go for it. So I squared it up again. And I hit the second shot 18 feet away from the hole. Don't and tell then, me. And then I walked up to the... Don't tell me. I walked, I up, to the, I walked up to the green. And uh, and I took a quick look, and I saw I gave it like a foot to the right of the hole, and I squared up an 18-foot putt with the seven iron and dropped it for a birdie. You suck. <laughs> that is not fair. It was captured on, on that film. To, I mean, that, that would be, for those, that would, they would like, this is the most legendary golf story ever. For these, and they've seen a lot of golf stories. Yeah, well, yeah, but the golf leading up to that birdie was the most horrendous golf you've ever seen in your life. So at the Dunvegan Pub at St. Andrews, my club and ball is up on the wall, and there's, uh, the guys who own the pub <laughs> got that story up on wow. the wall. Wow. Uh, tick that one off. You couldn't have done it. I've known you for all of 30 minutes, and um, I'm just going to say that I, I think you, you never could have done it if there wasn't a crowd. <laughs> exactly. You're an entertainer. Yeah, it's something, there's something about it. Also the camera. There's something about, you know, it's yeah. like you got to be on. And, um, yeah, it was just one of those magical moments. Yeah, that is. Sometimes not, it happens. I love golf, so it's it's it's. But you're a good golfer. No, right? but I mean you're I under. Suck. No, but you you say you suck, but you play like don't you play off like a ten or something? Uh, I'm a, my my it's gone up. My index got down to seven, and now it's back. It's up to twelve. I, I Phil, I suck. Well, if you suck, I really suck because the most uh, the lowest I ever got to was a fourteen. We'll we'll compare our suck and and our suckiness. Some days it's so good, and then other days it's like how I mean I, I feel like you. You're you're a beginner. I think it's one of the most humbling games ever. Yeah. Oh no. It 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 it's and if you don't, we don't need to talk about me and my golf game. But if you don't start early, yeah. I don't know when you started playing golf, but it's not like, you know, if if I wanted to learn how to play guitar, I'm never going to be Jimmy Page. That's just a fact. Right. Or if I, you know, wanted to uh, learn a foreign language, I'm never, you know, it just doesn't. You don't get those things unless you start young. Yeah. No, it's true. I had this kid. The other day, my Uber driver in the Bay Area was asking, he wanted to start swimming. He said, how do I, you know, how can I, he, knew, he was asking me all these sports questions, you know, I'm, I'm going to start swimming now. How can I, you know, get to be really fast? And I said, well, so do you want the, the bad news? Or the only news, really, I said, it's too late. I mean, you have to start when you're five. Yeah. The kid was like 25. I'm like, you're fucked. <laughs> you're, you're just. <laughs> Poor guy. I mean. <laughs> Did he drive into a wall? No, no, no. Second? He was, he was, he laughed. He thought it was great. I mean, you just, uh, you, you can <clears> never learn right. that. Yeah, and you can't teach. Well, anymore. you believe that. I know you had uh, you had Malcolm Gladwell on, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 that whole ten thousand hour thing. I'm I'm a big proponent of that. And um, I, I just I just say to people, you know, time, time. You, you got to have the time. You got to put the time in. And yeah. it's just there's no way around some some of that. You want to be a maestro, then it's yeah. like I started to learn how to fly a plane. I always wanted to have a my license, and I and I was about to go solo, and uh, and then I thought, you know, I'm never going to be good enough. Or feel I'm good enough to want to take my wife and daughter up in the air with me. Interesting. So why, if if I'm if I don't feel good enough and th- that I can provide safety for them in the air, why am I flying? Right. So then what? Am I going to fly by myself? So then I thought <laughs> I, I think there's <laughs> just there's some, some things you don't like. You uh, yeah, for people your enemies. Like. Then then you go you go like maybe there's some things that you need to leave to some people to yeah. do because the only you. way I'd want to do it is if I was the best of the best. Yeah. 
and I knew I wouldn't be the best of the best because I wouldn't be flying. Yeah, yeah. I got to go back to the ship thing. The the, the, the ship thing because the, the, I too am claustrophobic, and and I just figured you were having a panic attack because your oxygen was running out and it was dark and you thought you were going to die, which all were happening. Um, but the, the the small spaces. So, but just I'm purely curious. Nobody listening to this he probably even gives a shit about this, but I'm curious. That water in New Zealand. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking about the Caribbean or Hawaii. No, that's it's already cold. sort of cold it's, and dark. It's seven mil wetsuit wet material, or at least a you know maybe a dry suit. It's cold. But but even if you're not inside the ship, it's still dark. Oh yeah. Well, at 120 feet down, as you know, right. uh, you're sucking air. I mean, obviously, the deeper for people who don't know, the deeper down. you go, the air gets compressed. You're sucking more air. You're taking in more nitrogen. You you have less and less time. I was so panicked that I was breathing so fast that I was actually sucking in water through the regulator. So there's a little diaphragm in the regulator when you're breathing, and the idea is you're meant to have nice, slow, controlled breath. So you exhale and you inhale, and that little rubber diaphragm moves for inhalation and exhalation. And I was breathing so fast that I was actually starting to suck in water and panicking. And and you know you don't have a lot of time when you're deep. You just, you know, the deeper you go, the faster you use up air. And um, yeah, and I was, uh, you know, single tank. And I, I've done a lot of diving since then. I realized that I, there were a lot of mistakes I made. I never tied a, tied a line from the outside. And um, the line is the breadcrumbs. Yeah, that's yeah, that that's, would, that, I'm like, I know, obviously can't have breadcrumbs. Yeah. Me, but like, how about like, that's how you get, that's how you get out. Yeah, if even, you get silted, even, you know. So I, I've done cave certification since then. And the reason I did it is because I'm so scared of close, you know, uh, confined spaces. So I purposefully put myself through cave diving training just because it's something that scared the crap out of me. I remember once I was on a shoot in Rat's, Rat's Nest Cave in, uh, for a discovery project back in the 90s, and um, we, we were in a squeeze uh, about two hours down inside a cave. So the whole time I'm just fighting this mental thing with my head not to panic. And <clears throat> we're in a squeeze, and there's five of us, and there was a squeeze where we're lying like, you know, on our backs with... with like maybe a couple of inches above our faces, and I just had my eyes closed. It's dark anyway, and I'm moving in the in the cave, knowing that all this massive rock is is above me. And uh, and as we were going through, we were meant to stay overnight in the cave, shoot the story, and then come out the next day. And for me, that was a big mental challenge. And the sound guy had a panic attack, and once he had an attack, the producer then had an attack, and I was right in the middle between the producer, sound person who were at the back. Then next to me was a cameraman and then the leader of this, this spelunker. And the spelunker said to the cameraman and I, I have to get these two people out. Are you, are you, are we still shooting this story or are we all bailing? And we had two hours into the cave of going up through these squeezes, taking our backpacks off, pushing them through little gaps. And, and, and uh, I said to the cameraman, are you good? And he said, I'm good. And, and the spelunker said to me, are you good, Phil? And I went, I'm good. You think? And then before I know it, he's getting these people out of the cave. And we waited in there for about four hours for this guy lying. And we couldn't move because if we moved, he'd never been able to find us. And we waited for him to take those two people out of the cave and come all the way back and get us yeah. and then make our way through the squeeze. And of all the things I've done, as far as mental challenges, is probably one of the toughest things. I would, and if it hadn't been for the cameraman helping me, you know, talking me through it, he kept telling me, you know, pretend you're lying in a field. Uh, a field of wheat and you're looking up at a beautiful blue sky with puffy white clouds and i'd do that and then i could see it 
And then I'd be like, no, no, no. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of rock above me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, then, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm out. And you know, I don't know how tight or how was it, if it was head to toe kind of thing. Yeah, but it was. To me, and the only thing, uh, and not to double back to my story, but the, the only thing I can relate to on that is, is way back in the day is getting MRIs. Oh, and so you know they same thing. They put you into this tube, yeah. And and obviously you know that 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 you know if you lifted your head, you'd hit your head. It's right there. The worst part for me is if by chance you lifted your knees, and like just touching your knees, realizing that 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 to me really because I did that in the in the tube. Yeah, I'm like okay, I am really truly stuck. Like and I yeah. I just lost it. I lost my shit. And like you know they give you the little thing. Yeah. an MRI where you ring the alarm and they get you right out and but it just but the, I'm with you I, I I that whole MRI thing I'm in the same way when when you're going in yeah. the curve of that of the bell when you when you go into the and your feet go first and as you see as you see that th- thing and you're going further in and you just want it to stop yeah. it's just that that yeah. panic I don't know what it is about that that it really messes with your head. We're claustrophobic. That's what we, we are majorly claustrophobic. <laughs> the- and I don't know why I keep forcing myself to 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 push myself to do it, but I think it's because I do believe in facing your fear. I do believe that you got to push back against your fear and let him and let fear know that you're in control ultimately. But but you know sometimes it's speaking speaking of that, and just because it was on the list and it was it was on <clears throat> a bunch of your lists, but there's just a few things. First of all, the 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 cave thing, I'm out. But you could do it if you had to do it. Well, I could probably do anything if I had to do That's it. That's what I'm but, saying. But you're not, you don't have to do it. You're... No, but I want to know I can do it. Okay. See, uh, like if I said to you, you had to do it for your kids, I guarantee you, you would get your ass down in that cave. Yeah, faster than anybody right. could see, right? Right, but I'd light my anything. head on fire for my kids. Exactly. So, so that, that's where, when people say they can't do something, I always said them, well, it's not that you can't do it, it's just that you're choosing not to do it. Yep. And, and, and I guess for me, my thing is, again, going back to the whole practice thing, I, I like to practice what I'm not good at. I suck climbing up mountains on a bicycle, so I, that's pretty much all I do when I ride is just try to get better at climbing. Um, so I try to go after the things I'm not good at because, and even golf, I love that I, I suck at golf, but I love that, you know, I, I was working once to try to get my handicap down. And I just took a, a, a period of time to try to see how low I could get it. I only got down to a 14, but I just wanted to to to, to challenge myself right. as something I sucked at. Because yeah. Yeah. I think it's good to do that sometimes. Okay, so the other things I'm out on are anything <clears throat> skydiving related. I stay in the plane. I don't I don't ever get out of good planes. Mm-hmm. And I've never had been forced or been put in that situation the other bungee one bungee jumping okay to... i'm getting that, that with the bungee jump thing no way no how not ever uh-uh i would never ever ever do that unless like i mean obviously if you're faced with you know trying to save a family member yeah but just for kicks and a challenge and oh i'm gonna do i'm gonna prove to myself i no, i'm out yeah but i'm and telling you, you set the world record well a friend of mine at the time i, I don't know if somebody's tried to come and yeah it's unofficial uh my friend was the co-creator of commercial bungee jumping his name is henry van ash i met him in the 90s it was new zealand uh, downhill mountain biking and downhill skiing champion crazy guy lived out of a volkswagen van smoked yeah. too much herb um i didn't think he was going to have a life ahead of him anyway fascinating guy we became friends for life He's ended up becoming this hugely successful entrepreneur. He launched a commercial bunch jumping around the world with AJ Hackett, has a vineyard, um, drives around in a Range Rover now. He's flying a helicopter. The guy's got an amazing life. Anyway, we're, we're tight. We're good friends. 
and uh, and I was doing a show, and uh, it was a called Adventure Crazy. It was for Discovery Channel, and I said to Henry, I said I want to do something really cool down in New Zealand. I said, can we, you know, can we break a world record bungee jumping? He said, absolutely. So we went to Kaurau Bridge. I was one of the first people to jump back in '89 when it first opened. '88, sorry, when it first opened on the first day. And uh, he said, you know what we'll do? We'll, we'll, eight of us will jump at one time off the bridge at the same time. And I said, this never been done before? He said, no. So uh, I figured, well, if the guy who owns the company is going to jump off the bridge, I'll jump with him. So that's what we did. We all jumped off at, at one time. And, um, and then, far? <clears throat> not far, like 100, uh, 143 feet. So uh, 43 meters, I think it was, yeah. something like that. And then years later, we went back and we did nine of us. Um, yeah. It was. It's a great feeling. <laughs> what if you? What if you hit each other, or get tingled up, or you know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah, it's no, a, no. That. that bungee, like I think. I think about those things. Bungee jumping is safe, really. I mean, it's. Uh, I'm sure calculated. it is. I mean, yeah. if it wasn't, we'd you know people were dying every day. We'd read about it and they'd stop it or they. Exactly. It. You know what but, it is? It's again. It's a, it's that mental leap thing. So, I tell people. People go, "Why would you bungee jump?" And I say, "Because, if you're prepared to stand on the edge of a bridge and leap." 43 meters, 150 feet, whatever it is, or Nevis is 300 and something feet. If you can take that mental leap, you can apply something as trivial as that into your everyday life to take mental leaps for things that really matter. Like taking a mental leap to try a new job, like taking a mental leap to move to a new city and start a new life and start again. So again, it comes down to this whole idea of practicing. And sometimes you take a trivial thing and you get people to practice with something that really doesn't matter yep. so that then the brain is, is ready to take a mental leap into something that does matter. Yep. Because a lot of people are living in this kind of bubble where they're trying to protect themselves from making risky decisions so, or, or taking, you know, they're adverse to trying new and different things. M Malcolm Bladwell says that Everything new and different is most susceptible to market research. So what drives me crazy is people that are not prepared to try new and different. And new and different requires that person taking a mental leap, taking, going to a place that, you know, that isn't a little uncomfortable. So I get people to practice with so-called ordinary things, trivial things, so that when it really matters, they take that job opportunity mm. in Montana to go make beer for the beer company whatever so, it is <laughs> a little i'm gonna have a little side conversation with the listener and this you're not part of this conversation but listeners um are, are you are y'all the only ones who feel like total losers right now because I, I feel like a total loser like i am like i have l tattooed on my forehead right now what are you talking about because none of us all of us are like well, we're no we're not no, nobody anyways i i love it but yeah. i do i feel like a loser right now let's talk about something else yeah <laughs> no I'm, I'm serious and then people listening are like i'm a loser no, no, I don't. I know. I, look, I mean, we, I, we, they're 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 wimps like me. No, I don't. I don't think that's true. I mean, well, first of all, with you, you know, it's not true. I mean, taking risk in your life, huge risk. I mean, I mean, how many times did you take risk going down a mountain and and yeah. you know well, that's, that's do, a different. That's, yeah, but that that's was, a risk. You could do that with that, your a eyes lot closed. of people. Yeah, yeah, well, you would. Yeah, well, I wouldn't. But I, I, I mean, of all the things I've done, I know I'm not going down a mountain on a wet road at 80 miles an hour. Yeah. So risk is, is it's relative. Like to me, there, there, there are lots of people that take risks every day. There are lots of people that do things that are way mentally tougher than, than I am. I'm constantly meeting people like that every day. I mean, even the people that get up every day at 4.30 and have been for 30 years, mm -hmm. I mean, that mental toughness yeah. of doing that. So no, I, I, I think it's all relative. I, I, all I'm saying is that I believe all of us 
have more potential than we give ourselves credit for. So all I try to encourage people to do is I to agree with you there. tap into your yep. potential. That's right. all. Okay. All right. <clears throat> we're, we're coming back. We're, 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 we're going to feel a little better about ourselves, you know? <laughs> you know, when I was reading, I read that you grew up in, or you spent some time in Antigua growing up. You just rode with the Antigua Cycling so I was Association, down, right? The only, the only reason I bring this up, because we were there last Thanksgiving, and we stayed on a little island off of Antigua. Yeah, Jumbie uh, Bay. Called Jumbie Bay. But I would take, and I don't know, I might, I might have talked about it on this podcast, I don't know, but I would take the ferry over every morning, and I got hooked up with all these local yep. uh, riders, and, and we would go hammer for two, two and a half hours yep. every day. And I mean, it was, I, I loved the island i loved the people i loved riding there and when i saw you spent eight years of your you know younger years there i was like i gotta ask about antigua loved it okay so that's where i fell in love with cycling interesting so um when when i when i was growing up on the island there wasn't a lot of organized sport and um i saw a couple of guys riding around on bikes and um there was this one kid who had a beautiful peugeot an Eddie Merckx Peugeot, uh, like I think it had the world championship stripes on it. And I remember the Peugeot going around the island in simplex gearing. And um, I just remember noticing this bike. And um, the only bike I'd had at that point was a little like spider bike, single speed bike yeah. that my dad took down to a, a panel beater that sp he sprayed it yellow because I wanted it to be yellow like this Eddie Merckx bike. And, uh, and, and I would ride all over the island on this little bike. And we used to have a lot of flat tires because they had Cassie, a lot of Cassie on the on the going on the I'm road. I'm sure the roads were terrible back My then. My dad took used to take two tires, old tires, put them on the same rim. So he'd cut the inside of the tire out, put it inside the other one, and weight the wheels down to like, try to stop the Cassies from just a liner. That's like a tire, like liner. a line, yeah. exactly. Wow. Anyway, this young kid sold the Peugeot, and I bought it. And I could barely get my leg over this thing. It was a small frame. It was probably a 48-inch frame. But I could, and I was a small kid, really small. So at 9 or 10 years old, I got my first 10-speed so, bike. Huh. And I started riding around the island. And it was like freedom. And back in the, in the 70s in, on the island, it was, it was pretty amazing. A lot of unsealed roads and that sort of thing. Anyway, by the time I was 11, I was riding about 50 miles a day. And I started hooking up with some of the guys that you rode with, because I saw the photograph with you yeah. and those guys. Some of those guys that that um, that you were riding with, they were in their early 20s. Right. Anyway. They're like masters now, but and they're they would, strong. Exactly. And they would go past me, and um, and I would yell out to them. And then after a while, I, I, was, I was getting stronger and stronger. After a while, there was this one guy who who would stop and he'd say, hey, you sit, sit behind me and I'll look after you. And now I realize he was only in his 20s. Um, anyway, we would start to, they would used to ride going all around the island out to yeah. Fig Tree Drive and everything. Sure. And there was a killer climb going up Fig Tree Drive. And every time we got to Fig Tree Drive, I would get dropped. And, and way, uh, that's a steep, for the listener, that's a steep, and we did that. I mean, I did it. And, the, and times. the old gearing, you yeah. remember the, 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 the old gearing. I mean, I don't know what I had on the back, like a 23 or something, probably. And well, you I wouldn't mean, even had a 23. Probably. Yeah, it was a tiny 20. little, and yeah. it was a 10 speed. So, Anyway, the, after a while, the guy put a toe strap on the back of his seat, and he, and he said, you hold on to this, and he would pull me up as far as he could up the hill to be able to stay with the guys without getting dropped. Yeah. And then at some point, he'd say, all right, you got to let go, and I'd let go, and then I'd get dropped. And I kept trying and trying and trying. Finally, one day, I had enough strength in my legs, and he had enough in his legs to be able to get me up, and I started going over the hill, and then I started to stay with them. And 
I started hanging with them on these 50-mile rides. Well, but I was always totally tapped at the end of it. I was a tiny little kid. And, and, um, and then finally, I, I left there when I was a teenager to go back to New Zealand to school. Well, years later, hmm. in 2010, I found out that those guys that I rode with came to the LA Olympics in 1984 and rode on the track. And um, I went back, and they, they're obviously older than me. I was, so they'd be like 10 years older than me. And I was in my 40s, and they were in their 50s. And we went on the same ride again that I went on when I was a kid. Same ride out the back of, of Fig Tree Drive, same ride up towards Shirley Heights and all the way down, a lot of bunch of climbing, a big loop of the whole island, a 50-mile yeah. ride. And this time I was in the best shape. I'd just come from riding across America. And it was like I felt like it was payback time because I suffered like crazy when I was a kid. And this time, no, I didn't kick their ass, but I was like, you know, I got into it with them. And I'm here to tell you, they, they – I could I could uh, drop them, but it was barely. I mean, and, and my only excuse, and I and I still banter with them back and forth on you know on devices and the internet and stuff is, I, I fully expected that the roads would be just complete shit. Yeah. So I took a gravel bike down there. I took a really heavy gravel bike, big fat tires because I didn't want to spend my time fixing flats and yeah. wheels and so, and the roads ended up being perfect. Yeah. But I couldn't. Two things. One, I couldn't drop these guys. They were that strong. And two, I couldn't understand anything they said. Like the, just that local dialect and the speed that they talk. Well, I, I spoke that pure when right. I was a kid. And I was like, after a while, I just gave up. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to enjoy this. I, I, you know, they're nice guys. They're not saying anything, you know, but I couldn't, I just gave up. I couldn't understand them. Yeah. Well, I, I, that was my accent. And, um, I have a, I have a photograph I could send you, uh, Actually, I don't know if you want to, you could probably put it up on the website, but there's a photograph of me with those guys when I was 10. Oh, I got to have it. And, um, and we, we, used to, we used to go around the villages, and I wanted to be black so bad because I hated being white. I hated being the only white kid in this group of guys. And we would go around the island, and we'd stop and get water and have a mango or something. And we were going through this village once, and, um, and we stop, and we have water and mango, and this guy muscly big muscly guy from his balcony yells down at me hey white boy unky boy what are you doing coming here eating all my mangoes and things and starts oh. you know yelling out at me and i was so i was i just remember being so angry because i thought of myself as being antiguan and i didn't see black and white i just was part i was one of the guys but the idea that he called me out as a hunky boy you know just made me infuriated and, every, and most people knew me on the island from riding around. Even when I went back, people, like I would stop somewhere and then would look, there's this woman in an ice cream store. She remembered me from when I was a kid. Yep. And um, Well, everybody there is black. Yes. And you're a little white kid and riding around all, all day long. And I got day. like long hair, yeah, you know, dandy hair. Stick out a bit. Stick out a bit. Yeah. So, But it incensed me, right? I was like crazy angry. You'll see the photograph. And so I yell up to the guy, who you calling white boy? Why you don't come down here and I got to cuss you up and take a piece of bull butt and whack your own ass? And this guy has no idea who this white kid is and he can't believe, like, what the hell is that coming out of this boy's mouth, you yeah. know? And then all the guys started to laugh and the more they laughed, the more angry I got. And then the guy came down, could have kicked my ass, you know, like of big guys. But, you know, it was just this, it was just this great moment. And um, so I, I, had, I have like amazing memories of these guys. I'll tell you something interesting. Uh, when I went back, I, I collected up 300 pounds of cycling kits mm. from the Santa Monica community. I put them in a, in a suitcase and I took them down to Antigua. Yeah. And in that photograph 
with you staying with all those guys. It's one of the journeys. I saw the photograph. I was like, holy shit, there's Lance. There's, there's, there's all that shit from Helen's and from all these cycling clubs. Yeah, and, and they had uh, all this random stuff. I didn't even, I just, I don't know how. I took a 300-pound case down there of that stuff. So I've, I've gone down a few times. And uh, I take I take stuff down to them. We we should plan a trip down there. It, I, I was surprised at how good the ride. Well, was. I tell you, I went in a I went in a race in 2010. I went in a race that in in there, and I, like I said, I was in pretty good shape. Anyway, the, it was out to the, the one end of the island and back again, and then out. They did it twice. Yeah. It was like a 50 mile race. Anyway, they were piddling along like just like just like taking their time going. Like, Guys, what kind of racing is this? Somebody you know attack. So nobody, nobody attacked. So there were some young kids there, 17, 18. I said, come on, let's go. So we took off and we got away. It was a group of 10. And then the, these guys are sitting on my wheels. Like, come on, what, what the hell's going on? And said, I said, well, how's this work? And they said, well, they just ride out there. They ride back. They ride out there. And then on the way back, they, they start racing. Yeah. Like, what kind of race is that? Doesn't anybody ever attack? That's like the Giro. Is it? <laughs> That's the Tour of Italy. You, it, you wanted the tour to France, yeah. But you got the this was the, the tour, tour of Antigua, yeah. And and yeah. Uh, anyway, it was I was so crazy. I borrowed this guy's bicycle. They were the, the fucking ice cream stop, like the tour of Italy. That's what they wanted, and you're out there, you know. So we get back to the Antigua Vivri, uh, um, the Vivian Richards Recreation Grounds, and and I and I come to do the first loop, and and we do the loop. We go around and we start going back on the second loop. And they're nowhere to be seen. And now the, I've got these guys working with me. You know, I said, come on, just work with me. Work with me. Just get, just, just start right, rotating. We'll just get ahead of these guys. They'll never get us. Anyway, this guy drives up in a, in a vehicle. He goes, Philip, you have to drop back and wait for the peloton. I said, why? He goes, y'all took a wrong turn when you made the, the loop going around there. We weren't ready for you. Y'all came in a little earlier than we were expecting. I said, hold on a second. So... I just finished the first loop. We've been busting our ass for an hour, and now I got to drop back and sit with the peloton. So he made me. We had to sit up. We waited for them to catch up. Sure enough, like the racing started about ten miles from the end, and then uh, I got away in a, in a group and? with them. I got away in a group with with six riders, and there was uh, there was a young kid that would have ridden with you. It was a um, young twenty three year old kid, as uh, Jameer, I think his name was. It was a young girl. Miko oh yeah, Butler. Me, Miko Butler. Miko, she's yeah, she's she's actually made it, you know, on the international scene. Yeah, she's done quite well. Yeah. And anyway, we, there was six of us. Anyway, about about three miles out, I uh, on one of the little climbs going out, I stood up on my uh, big chain ring. Chain fell off. <laughs> they were gone. <laughs> I got my chain back on and finished. But they're done. Yeah, but see it was you, it was see fun. You later, hunky boy. Yeah, man. <laughs> I can't believe them just right away like that. I love that you rode with them. Now, that's, I love it. I, yeah. I love it. I was like, cool guys. It was like four of them that went to the Olympics for the track. The, the lady who managed this property that I stayed at on Jumby, her name was Barbara, sweet local lady, been there obviously her whole life. I said, hey, will you set me up with some uh, local guys. She says, oh, I think I know a guy that rides. This, you know, blah, blah. So she calls him. And Cliff, was it Cliff? No, it was, and I'm, I should know the name, and I'm spacing the name. It wasn't Cliff, but, but, he, he doesn't even is this this is the picture here yeah there's a higgs pulled up the picture that's miko and then uh oh yeah so i rode with him i rode with this he's guy when super I was strong kid. yeah and so that's who barbara called to, yeah. to to take me around the island and uh and he didn't even those are two ladies that these are now we're looking at my instagram these are two ladies that were out on that at the point where the the memorial is where they had all the 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 ship was it called shipwreck where they thought the 
where the ship crashed coming in from it's anyways i'm, I'm messing all of this up where was that was that on antigua that's, or was yeah that? that's on antigua where the the they had some ship crash or the slaves they would push the slaves. it was a oh, terrible really? story okay i didn't but so this guy she calls this guy and i can't believe i'm flaking his name and she says uh she says my name she says yeah this i have a we have a house guest who would like to go riding and he says okay the guy says well, what's his name and she says oh and she and she had no idea this lady named barbara she has, she goes what's your name i go lance and she goes his name is lance his name is lance <laughs> and so he didn't even he was like okay i'm gonna take this guy lance riding so i get off the ferry and this dude is standing there and he's like oh it's that lance <laughs> he had no idea yeah and she had no idea yeah it was just and we ended up i formed this bond with all of them and with the the staff of this house it was just that's the president that's cliff williams so, so cliff was on some of the rides yep yeah and yeah he he, he, he doesn't he doesn't ride as as much with the faster riders now but he's uh and i don't think he'd uh he'd think it was bad that i said that but no he's a but super the, super these, nice they're guy. on strava they're i mean they're yeah. legit you know they're riding high-end yeah. road bikes yeah and uh, it's just so good yeah well it's kind of it's, it's kind of cool that you connect we got a bunch them. of people wanting to go down to antigua and ride and they they dodged the more not barbuda but antigua almost dodged or kind of dodged yeah they they pretty dodge. much dodged irma yeah i was i went down there i'm actually shooting a, a documentary about um barbuda so oh, uh my uh my godfather is was the doctor there for years on barbuda and and i had just been in barbuda a week before the hurricane uh vacationing on barbuda because i go back quite a bit and um and then the hurricane hit and it was like a direct hit and no, if you, the images of barbuda are, are it's you, you, there's nothing yeah. left yeah and it's, i mean you think if you say okay there's nothing left like yeah okay no. right right i got you phil there's something left. No, no there is nothing left yeah. no it's it's bad they're starting from zero yeah and no, i'm 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 working with uh i'm hoping to help get the school back up and running with the with the headmaster um mm -hmm. a guy by the name of john mussington is the headmaster there so i'm trying to work a way to uh, as part of the documentary um, there's only 1,800 people live on the island of, of Barbuda, and it has a crazy history. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, it's it, it's. Yeah. How many people are there right now? Hundred. Well, 1800? they can't. Well, 1,800 was how many residents? They were all taken off. It was the first sure. time in 300 yeah. years that there was nobody on the island. Right. That was, that was, and they were all was, taken off and put in Antigua. Yeah. And then now they're um, now they're slowly going back to rebuild, but and, and put there because I of mean, slavery. I, well, I mean, I'm saying they were taken off the island to 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 get away from Irma. Yes, but they can't. They don't know the path of the hurricane, so they're they're being taken off. And I, I had well, they were taken off after the hurricane. Oh, after the hurricane. Yeah, so because they, what so happened? These structures actually they survived in these because you can yeah see the there was one one baby that that uh, died in in uh, in the hurricane, but yeah the 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 island was flattened. Yeah, it, about ninety percent of all the buildings were destroyed. So people survived in in buildings with no roofs and huddled together and behind concrete walls and yeah yeah they woke up the next day thinking with with the mentality of no opportunity wasted they were making lists the next day yeah it was uh, yeah we got to talk about the ride yeah. no not the ride the ride the yeah. ride was the ride across America yeah. which by the way is crazy anyways but then you decided to take it a step further with the ride um and to me i like i i watched the film the other day and i have 
I have a lot of questions, but first I want to just let the listener know that the 2018 Tour de France is going to be roughly 2,000 miles. The 1928 Tour de France was 3,300 miles. Yeah. Which, for those of you who don't know, that's a lot longer. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, A, it says just how brutally hard the sport was back then, but then B, and most importantly, you come up with this idea that you're going to go recreate that experience all the way down to a 50-pound road bike, the exact type of bike that they rode, you know, yeah, so the bike the bike was twice as heavy as a modern bike. It was about weighed in at about thirty pounds with the with the metal uh, with the metal water bottles. Um, it took me took me three years to find the bike. I wanted the authentic bike. Ideally, I wanted to get the bike of of Harry Watson, who was the first New Zealander to ride in the Tour de France in 1928, and also part of the first English speaking team. I wanted it to be as authentic as I as I could. Unfortunately, the, the frame was really super small, um, so so I had to do some modifications to the bike just to get in a position to be able to ride it, um, because you know most of the riders back then were very small. Uh, but yeah, I found the bike, and um, and then I had to do some major work on the bike, rebuilding the wheels. Um, the bike came with the parts, or you had to. Go, I, had, I had everything for the bike, that. but the problem was I, I, the crank length was one hundred and sixty sixty five mil, which is wow. way too short. The um, the the seat post most of the seat posts they would have normally only have them up about two inches. I needed to have it up about eight. So then I got thrown way back because of the geometry of the of the frame. I was thrown way back behind the bottom bracket. So then I had to come forward. So then I had to build a heavy steel. It weighed two and a half pounds seat post that was heavy steel that was a shape of a seven. So I could pull the seat forward. When I pulled the seat forward, it threw the whole cockpit out. So then I had to get a new stem built, which is built out of solid steel. Um. To yeah, I mean the, the positioning on the bike was not the best, yeah. and it was a really hard bike to ride. It took me ages to work out how to climb and stand, um, just because it had such a rake on the the, so the, the the rake, the fork, the whole geometry of. And for you guys who haven't seen the <laughs> film, you a you should absolutely see it. But when you do, you think about the geometry of the bike, the equipment, and you replicated everything, the bike, the helmet, the goggles, the glasses, the, the I mean, yeah, you said the metal water, you had the water bottles on the front of the handlebars. They lasted, they lasted about seven stages and it fell out on the road and got run over by a truck. Good. <laughs> and then we went to plastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and just, and by the way, too, I mean, the stages were not, even though the race was 1300 miles longer, it was still, it was a little, it was three and a half weeks, not three weeks. 22 stages. 22 stages. 22 stages over uh, 26 days. Um, seven stages over 200. An average of 150 a day. Um, w the death stage was 225 and 22,000 vertical. The winning time in 1928 for stage for the death stage, which was from Bayonne to Luchon, was, uh, was 18 and a half hours. And that was Victor Fontaine. He was a French rider. He won it. They started with 100 riders on stage nine. 25 guys dropped out on that one stage alone. Yeah. It was brutal. And perhaps the most brutal part of the whole thing was, and we never had to contend with this as 46-year-old guys, but uh, they were mostly on unsealed roads going over right. the mountains. Now, we it kicked our ass going over the Pyrenees. I mean, we over... Two days of riding, we did uh, 
two days of riding, we did 36,000 feet in two days. God. And um, it kicked our ass. I mean, it was, it was so hard. Uh, yeah, funny story, going up the Tourmalet, um, I, I, we, we just lost track of time. At that stage, stage nine, took us 23 and a half hours. Right. We were shooting a movie while we were riding. Bro, it was hard to watch. And, uh, and I don't remember going up the Tourmalet, uh, but it's so surreal because it's in the middle of the night. There's nobody around. And, and I, I see these giant sperm on the road. And, uh, and, and I'm like, oh, my God, what, what am I looking at? And the lines are, you know, you're starting to get, like, hypnotized. And the next day I said to my buddy Ben, and I got to give a shout out to my buddy Ben who stuck with me through this whole The fact endeavor. he's still your buddy is, 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 well, is, he, the, is another podcast. He's, he's, a, he's an awesome guy, as hard as nails, tough as nails. And uh, I said, Ben, did you see the sperm on the road last night? It's giant sperm going up the tourmalade. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, I'm telling you, I saw like giant sperm. Well, months later, I went back to shoot aerials in France in the Pyrenees and the Alps. And we're flying up the tourmalade, following the road up the tourmalade. I look down, there's the giant sperm painted on the road. So I actually did see sperm oh, on the tourmalade. Because okay. you had me there for a minute thinking it was like one of these, you know. Yeah, and it was something bugs. I was seeing, but it was actually there. Somebody painted like them on the road. And swimming bugs. upstream yeah. towards the top of the tourmalade. The, the camera work is interesting because I watched it with Anna. And it, you open with this, this aerial shot where you're, the clouds are yeah. settled over either the Alps or the Pyrenees. I don't know which yep. it was. And, and she's spent a big part of her life in france and she's like where is that i'm like honey this is in france we're watching the thing about the tour of france and but the camera work there and just the 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 we talked about it before we went on on air it's just uh it's so crisp and like the quality was amazing yeah so we i wanted to get stock footage of the pyrenees and the alps mm. in 4k so what we watch on tv is hd which is 1080 lines 4K is 4,000 lines. So it's four times the resolution of what we watch in HD. Hmm. And it wasn't that long ago that we were watching SD, which was 525 lines. We went from 525, we went to 1080 HD, high definition. Now we're talking about UHD, which is 3,800 lines actually. But anyway, we, it's called 4K. And so no- Rounded up. Yeah. No documentary had ever been shot with a 4K F55 Sony camera, the latest technology in 2013. And we beta tested basically these new Sony cameras. And then Ongino, which is a French lens company, make the best zoom lenses and beautiful glass lenses. French company, they were so enamored by what we were doing. They, they loaned us over 400,000 euros worth of glass, super fast glass that would allow us to shoot at night. It's very sensitive to uh, low light. Yep. And without the support of Sony and Ongino, we just wouldn't have been able to make the film. And we was, but huge um, data rate. You know, we're shooting, we're talking about 300 megabits per second. And for the aerial, 600 megabits per second. HD that you watch on TV is about 50 megabits. Oh, wow. So the amount of resolution and data that we were capturing is what gave us that clarity. But I couldn't find any stock footage of any aerials in the Pyrenees or Alps that was for sale. So to the best of my knowledge, we you've never seen the classic Tour de France climbs in this kind of resolution right. before. No, it was it was nuts to watch. By the way, too, uh, for the listener, you know, you know, say two hundred guys start the tour next summer, you'll see probably a hundred and seventy to one hundred and eighty ride into Paris at the end of this thing. Yeah, the nineteen twenty eight Tour de France had the highest dropout dropout rate ever. Yes, not not up until that point. Ever until now, only forty one finishers, which 
from 168. And um, it, I think it was the second longest next to the 1926 tour. And 1926 tour was, I believe, the longest. But, you know, the way Henri de Grange designed the tour from 1903, it was all about attrition. It was all about his, his ideal race was one guy was going to make it around France back to Paris. And he did a pretty good job of, of knocking people out in the early Tour de France's. And uh, yeah, it was a stunt. And, publicity and he was a masochist, this guy. So he, he didn't believe in derailers. I read a great, great quote the other day. He said, he said uh, derailers are for guys over 46. And the time that I rode the tour, I was exactly 46, yeah, was riding say, a single we're, speed. We're good now. And, and, and uh, you know, it's like, you know, I should, have been, I should have had the gears. Even he would have agreed I could have had the gears. But no, single speed. And you know what's really interesting? The most fascinating part of it all as I was saying, I'm not a, a great climber, but what happened was it made me realize, you know how heavy the, the winner of the Tour de France was in 1909? Uh, I do not know, but I actually really want to know. Okay, 190 pounds. Wow. Uh, yeah, he, he was, um, Francois Faber was 190 pounds and six foot two. He was a monster of a man. So the etiquette in the Tour de France in the early days was you never, you, you would never, stop and change your gear before the leader did that was the etiquette yep. so what this guy used to do they, I, I i'm trying to think of what they called it. he had a nickname like the monster of the north or something he's from luxembourg what he would do is he would ride everybody off his wheel and the only people who could hang with him he would ride as far as he could with let's say he's on a 68 inch gear and he would just stomp on this thing 190 pounds and just stomp up the mountain and this the lighter guys you know they're buck 20 whatever they couldn't push a gear like that up the hill so every every pedal stroke he's like you know doing one rotation is 66 inches these guys would just get popped off the back and he would ride up the mountain as far as he could and then by the time he changed his gear and he'd go down to say a 44 inch gear which was a which is a small gear in those days by the time he changed he's now ridden so far up on the 66 inch gear there's no way those guys are ever going to catch him now the 190 pound beast gets on the thing and he starts crushing 44 inches up the up the mountain and and he won the tour. And so for those listening, so they didn't have derailers. So you had, correct me if I'm wrong, I love that you know a lot more about cycling than I do. But um, No, no, I'm just no, fascinated I, this, with I don't know any of this facts. shit. I, don't, I love it. I mean, you, the only thing I can relate to now is being almost 190 pounds. But uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's not true. Kidding, kidding. No, I'm going um, to guess you're 174. No, I'm, one, I'm about 180. Are you really? Yeah, but I was 165 when I did race the tours. But so for the listener, we don't need to talk about me. Yeah. The listeners at home, so they only had two gears. They had a gear on each side of the rear wheel, and when they needed, when they got to the mountains, they would get out, they'd take the wheel out, turn it around, put it back in, and then that would be your climbing gear. They'd climb the mountain, top of the mountain, re, you know, just reverse it. Get off, take the wheel out, turn around, then you have the descending and the flats gear, and that's, I mean, yeah, talk so, about a miserable... So, so what the, the way it worked in the beginning was that the first bikes were fixed, Right, right, going back to 1903, they had a fixed gear. Then they got the freewheel. Then what they did was they created a hub where you had three cogs on one side and you had two on the other. So you'd have like an 18 on one side, 19, 20 on the other side, then a 21, and then a 22. So you had these ratios where you had actually five different selections. Then they would choose the chain ring depending on what the stage was. So if it was rolling rolling, or if it was all massive climbing, they would choose the chain ring. You were restricted by, by what, what spread you could have with the cogs at the back based on how much, you had, how much space you had in the back fork to slide the wheel mm. forward and backwards to get the right chain tension. 
So you, ha- you had to decide, okay, my range can only be between, say, an 18 and a 22, or I can go, you know, 19 to 23. And 23 was about the biggest cog that they had that was, like, seen as massive. So they would have to undo the, the they'd stop to undo the wheel with the little butterfly uh, nuts, and then they would lift the, their finger, take that and lift it over, put it on the thing, and then tighten it up again. <laughs> So for so, so for you wimps at home that complain when your DI two isn't charged, okay, you know just put a little of that in your pipe and smoke it. Well, I was telling uh, telling um, my friend the other day I, when I got back from France, I was so used to riding a single speed, and I I got so into it. I went for a ride on my bike. I did this ride called uh, Tots, which is uh, it's a ride in Santa Monica, Topanga, Old Topanga, and, and yeah, Stunt. Love it. It's a great little ride. It's like 3,000 feet of climbing. Amazing riding. It's a, um, didn't you used to train up by Fern, Fernwood? Or was it? Uh, well, I spent years. I, was, I, was, I dated a girl there for many, many years. Yes, so I, right. I spent a lot of time. That little climb that goes up towards Saddle Peak. You know I that? had every road. Dave and I. Dave's sitting right there. He'd be behind me in the car. And, is that right there? And, and so we, we had it so dialed. This is before Apple Maps, Google Maps, any of this stuff. We had What was that damn book we had? The the Thomas Guide. Yeah, I love the Thomas Guide. So the Thomas yeah. Guide is like it looks like a yeah a, a phone book, and then you you know it's all gridded out. And, and then all the pages you need always fall out. Those, well, right? <laughs> They're always falling out. Well, those are the ones you're using. Yeah, so. exactly. But it, we had it completely dialed. But people think, oh, I live in or you're gonna you live in LA, you can't ride a bike. No, it's actually it's unbelievable, unbelievable. Yeah, can't, around Candy, candy Store, all those Saddle Peak and Tuna, crazy descent there. It's crazy. Anyway, so I I go on tots. I do, go do tots. Which is a you know this is a reasonable ride. It's a forty five fifty miles or something, and three thousand feet of climbing. And I get back and I'm sitting down with my friend having coffee, and he goes, "Phil, I didn't say anything, but you didn't change your gear once." Come on, <laughs> come on. I'm on the bike. I just felt like I I just put it in an easy gear, and I went and I stood up on the gear. I I didn't you know I didn't even think to change the gear. <laughs> you know what? Another another thing I read, which I, I had never heard this. This was on Wikipedia when they were right or they were you know talking about the 1928 tours. Henry de Grange allowed substitute riders in 1920. Yes. It was the only year that he allowed them. So stupid. And he thought, and that's what he said, this this sucks. And that was, and he said, we'll never do that again. But they allowed, if, if a rider uh, crashed or, or was injured or got sick, you could substitute. They, there are actually people that float that idea out today. Yeah. Assuming it's in the first few days, right? You can't, you can't get two and a half weeks in, but. Yeah, Henry was like, no, no, no. So, so the way the way it worked in 1928, which was really dumb, 15 of the 22 stages were team time trials. So these four guys, one New Zealander and three Australians, turn up to France. So Hubert Opperman, Opperman was a phenom. This guy was world champion afterwards. Australian. I mean, Australian. Yeah. He beat the winner of the Tour de France after the Tour de France, whooped his ass. It was unbelievable. So these four guys that turn up to France with their antiquated bikes from New Zealand and Australia. The French, all the French and the French media, like, la- were laughing at them. They were like the laughing stock, and it really pissed off Sir Hubert Opperman. 25-year-old guy, he turns up with the best riders from down under, and he was really kind of pissed off that, that, that they weren't given their respect. Now, they didn't know how they really measured up to Nicolas Franz and Henri de Luc and all these guys. They didn't know how they were going to go at all. But there was a race before the Tour de France, and they decided they were going to show these guys how the Europeans ride. And... um. And Sir Hubert Opperman said, I'm going, I'm, whatever happens, I'm going in the breakaway. You guys protect me. I'm going in the breakaway. And I got to show, he was the best of the four of them. He said, I got to show these guys that we mean business and they got to treat us with respect. So he got away in a breakaway with 12 guys. And, um, 
and they tried everything to drop him. They tried everything. They tried boxing him out. They tried attacking him over and over and over. And anyway, he just kept hanging in and hanging in and hanging in until finally there was three. And then Nicholas Franz turned to Opperman and said, okay, no more bullshit. Now we, you know, now we ride. Right. And they rode to the finish, and Opperman finished third in that race. It was like a warm-up race. Yeah. And then people were like, Ooh, okay. So Alcyon, which was the top team, actually offered Opperman a place in the team. Okay. said, you're good enough to be in the team. We'll take you. And Opperman said, not unless you take my other three teammates. Now, uh, Henry, uh, sorry, Harry Watson was good enough. There was a guy, Osborne, who was also very good, but they didn't know really how they compared. And there was a guy called Bainbridge who had fought in World War yeah. One. Ernest Bainbridge. Who was old, too old. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't at that elite level. So Opperman turned them down. So 15 of the 22 stages are team time trials, and they're four guys against teams of 10. Right, because they, they were promised six other, they had a, they and they didn't promised turn up. a French sponsor, they were promised... You know, six great French teammates. Yep. And the sponsor didn't show up, and the six other guys, dudes, didn't show up. And so they just had to do it with four. So the, fr the French media said, all right, you're done for. There's no way you're going to make it. You'll never make it. And how could they make it? They're f four guys against 10. So Bainbridge could only last, you know, half of each of the stages before he got dropped. So now they're down to three. Now they're three guys riding against 10, doing 10% of the work, and these other guys are sharing 33% of the work. But, you know, anyway somehow miraculously they survived mm -hmm. and one stage opperman said we have to show them that we mean business so there was an actual uh race and they got seventh and eighth they attacked and they alcyon only caught them towards the end and they got seventh and eighth and everyone was just like how are these guys doing it now what you're talking about was at stage 11 Henri de grange said any of the teams who want to swap out any of the domestiques can swap them out so it pissed off sir hubert opperman so much that this happened that he he was absolutely exhausted after the 11th stage. He says, we're going to attack. And the other guy's like, what are you talking about? We're like, Harry Watson had dysentery. They were like completely done. He said, yeah, but if we don't attack and these guys, these fresh guys come out and we don't show them that we mean business, they're going to attack us all the way to Paris. Yeah. So they attack from Nice up, up through Grenoble. There's 15,000 feet of climbing all the way up over Grenoble and uh, over the Glibiers and into Grenoble. And they attacked. So, wow. I mean, the guts of these guys was just, you know, extraordinary. And that's really why I felt like the story had to be told because everybody focuses on winners all the time. And sometimes it's not always about that. It It's sometimes just about, yep. I mean, what they did if compared to what the top teams did to me is way more mind-blowing. Well, know? And they didn't win. And by the way, it took them six weeks to get there. They, they get they took and one boat. set of rollers. Yeah, they took they took their rollers on this ship or whatever they you know the the the, yes. the boat they took over. They took them six weeks up the you know the, the Suez Canal and yep. everything. And I mean these other dudes, you know, they rolled down from their place in in Paris or in you know in Brussels yep. or you've, Milan, whatever. Hello, yeah, six weeks on the boat. Let's share the rollers. You have a great clip in the in the movie where that some lady comes up yeah. and says well, what do you what you know she, what are you guys doing she doesn't know she's just you know going to europe she's like what are you doing and one of the writers said oh honey we're we're powering the ship and she's like oh really <laughs> come on yeah I but mean, imagine so one set of rollers and then they they actually uh they were actually uh they stayed with the french olympic cycling team who were all used to riding like 100k races so they would go training with the French riders around Paris and in the outskirts of Paris because they didn't know who else to ride with. So these French Olympic cyclists, they were, they were, they were like, oh, we're going to show these guys. 
So apparently they would go out and they would trash them because these guys were all endurance riders. They were riding huge distances. Anyway, one day they got lost <laughs> and they, they ended up doing over 200 miles. Of the, uh, these Olympic riders just weren't used to run those kind of distances and they, they, uh, they had to nurse them all the way home. So, so uh, Hubert Oppelman, Sir Hubert Opp 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 Oppelman, Opperman. Opperman, yep. Opperman finishes 18th. Your man, uh, Harry Watson, your inspiration, finishes 28th. And Perry Osborne finishes 38th. Uh, the Bainbridge fellow DNFs from, get this, and if you write a lot for the people listening, you know what a saddle sore is. Homeboy Bainbridge drops out because of body sores. Yeah. Think about, oh, no, I don't want to think about it. Well, um, what people don't realize, Lance, is that, that you're going over these dusty roads and you're wearing woolen outfit and most of the road's unsealed, so the dust gets in between the, 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 your clothing and your skin, and now you're riding for 12, 15, 18 hours, and that's just rubbing away. And so, yeah, they get these sores, they, can't, they just can't get better. And so he just, he basically just, yeah, wasted away. And the other thing for the cycling fan list, <clears throat> when, you, when, you, when you, you know, watch this film, and we're going to get to it in a second, just how we watch it, um, you'll, you'll recognize, and when I was listening, I was like, I know this voice. Oh, yeah. I know this voice. And I <laughs> listened a little longer, and I'm like, that's McEwen. So Robbie McEwen has a big part in there doing a lot of voiceover for it. But, it, but yeah. at first I was like, you know, when you know somebody a long time, I was like, I know that voice. And yeah. It's not just another Australian person. Yeah. And yeah, that was, that was cool. To well, see. so Robbie, it was my wife's idea. My wife and producing partner, she said, you know, we really need a, a voice for Sir Hubert Opperman. She said, what about Robbie McEwen? So um, we'd been at uh, the, the um, uh, Canberra Library in Australia digging through um, Opperman's old files, and oh, we cool. met some cycling community there, and then we had a connection through to Robbie. So we called up Robbie, and we said, Robbie, would you mind doing the voice? And he said, I actually met Sir Hubert Opperman. I'd be honored. And there are statues all over uh, Australia of Sir Hubert Opperman. So I, I was directing uh, Robbie over the phone doing the voiceover. I sent him the script, and he went into a booth, and I, I can only hear him. Anyways, doing the lines, and I said, I said, Robbie, I said, I've got to get across what it's like to ride on a tour. I said, you know, most people don't know what it's like, especially as a sprinter, to suffer over mountains in the Tour de France. I said, think of your worst day in the Tour de France. He's like, I Which said, if, he had a lot of. Yes. <laughs> and he, and he, he would see he an said overpass yeah. and he got dropped. Yeah. He said that. And I he, love Robbie, but he just. He, well, he, he admitted it freely. Yeah. He said, listen, okay. dude, I'm a sprinter. And now he no. said, I suffered more like you. You no. would not believe. He's right. I said, okay, so. Think of your worst moment on the Tour de France, the day that you just felt like you, do, you were going to cry. He's, I said, can you think of it? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, now close your eyes and just think of being in that moment and now say to me, today, and the line was, today we went to hell and back, and at times we were brought to tears. Now just say that, being in the moment on the Tour, and he just nailed it, you know, because he knew. And that's why it was this authentic voice because it wasn't some actor; it was a guy who knew what it was like to, to, to bring to to come to tears yeah. on a on a ride. Oh, good, good, good on you for that. Yeah. He was he was great. The the, the other and we, we I realize we we're, we have this screening in like forty minutes, so we have to wrap up. But the other interesting thing, and I just want to highlight this because at the end of the film, which I love this when they any movie documentary or whatever, you go find the guys. You tell people like. You know what they did, and did they keep racing, or did they have two dogs, or you know what their life was like after this story ends? And 
Um, here, here the we're in America. Everybody's you know the life expectancy here is in the mid seventies, perhaps. All four of these guys lived into the nineties. Yeah, and this is you know we just heard about, and you're going to see in the film just how gnarly it was for them, and yeah, and you know back then, but they all lived these long, healthy lives. It was yeah, it was. So and Opperman cool. died on a stationary bike. He died on a stationary bike. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, one of the things, Lance, is with this film is Sir Hubert Opperman knighted statues all over Australia. He's a phenom. He had world records. He had the gold medal from Paris. The French people loved him. He wore a beret for the rest of his life. There was all this sabotage in, in the in the um, cycling um, in the uh, velodromes in, in Paris once, where they filed his chain down, and he got on a woman's bicycle in the middle of a velodrome and still broke a world record doing laps. He was a he was like this sensation with the yeah. French people, and to this day, you say Sir Hubert Opperman in Australia, he's up there with Bradman, who's a famous cricket player in Australia. He's revered in New Zealand. You say Harry Watson before this film was made, nobody knows who he is. He broke seven, he was New Zealand national champion seven times. He broke records that held from the 20s all the way into the 60s, mm. round Taranaki race and all of this. Nobody knew who he was. And he's from my hometown. And a huge motivation for me was, it really irked me that I, I remember asking Julian Dean, I, I asked Hayden Ralston, Hayden Godfrey and all these riders from, I was like, do you know who Harry Watson is? And they were like, uh, wasn't he some like old time cyclist? I'm like, this is disgusting. If you guys are like top New Zealand cyclists and you don't know who a seven-time New Zealand champion yeah. was and he's not in the Sporting Hall of Fame, all the more reason to make this film so that people go, this guy needs some cred. You know what I mean? Right. Got on a freaking boat and went halfway around the world to take on the world's best right. and raced in an underdog team yep. and still kicked people's ass. We had Major Taylor and you guys had Harry Watson. And that's but most, like, by the way, most American cyclists, yes. if you said... Major Taylor. Who's Major, Major Taylor? They'd be like, um, I don't know. And Major Taylor raced down in Australia quite and a bit. He was, back in the and he was, he was the, just what and you he was the phenom, he was beloved yeah. by yeah. everybody outside of of this country. I don't but, know why that hasn't been made into like a major feature film. Don't, that's a whole nother podcast. Is it Phil? really? Because okay. I, I, I would talk about this for hours. I've worked on this. I've thought about this. I've read all the books. I've talked all the. It, it, it before anybody before all the great African-American athletes that came into this country that we all talk about all the way up until LeBron James today. This is pre-Jack Johnson. No, this too. is way yeah. before. He was the first. Okay, that's a, that, we're not going to get started. Otherwise, there's going to be Well, a lot no, of, I mean, it's a story that has to be told. It has to be told. We'll yeah. talk about it offline. We'll keep, people will be curious. All right, how do, how do people see the documentary? How do people see La Ride? Well, we're working with a, with a great company uh, called Demand Film. Uh, we started working with them down in Australia. This is like the little film that could, you know. We, this is a self-funded film that got picked up by, by uh, some people down in Australia, some distributors after being at the New Zealand Film Festival. And, they, and this company called Demand Film, what they do is they set up screenings, um, and now we're setting up screenings all around the world through Demand Film, where people can set up a screening and they can see this film in a theater, which is where we want them to see it on a big screen. Right. So... One night only on November 9th, across America. Right now, I think we're in about 150 theaters, so there's got to be a yeah. theater near you. If you just go to us.demand.film slash Loride, that's the name of the, the film, Loride, you'll be able to see where this film is playing. November 9th. November, November 9th. This, right. So this podcast is going to drop November 6th. So I'm just telling you people, listen, you got three days to get off your ass and figure this out. Yeah. And we, I know we have a number of sold out screens already. Um, Add a second. 
I, excuse me? Add a second. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. This is to sell out tonight. Look, right? Andrew, he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Look, 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 yeah, your man they, here who's in charge of this stuff is like, yeah, good idea. Yeah. No, he's very good. Let's sell out. Let's sell out. Um, you know, we, 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 uh, we managed to get a lot of attention with the film um, with South by Southwest. We, were, we screened at South by Southwest and we won an award at the American Documentary Film Festival. And ultimately, when you make a film and you pour your s sweat, your blood, your tears into something, literally. you want to, yeah, literally, you want people to see it where, it's where films are meant to be seen on a big screen. Right. So uh, hopefully, people will turn up on, well, as many people as possible will turn up on November 9th because eventually it'll end up on the back of a plane seat and on your iPad and your whatever. But we went to great lengths to create a 4K, which is the equivalent of super 35 millimeter film print yep. of this film. And we want people to see that up on the big screen. And like I said, if you're into cycling and you know the big climbs, Galibier, uh, uh, where else were we? Um, Tourmalet, uh, Col du Abisque, all those big climbs. Yep. Nobody's seen those climbs in 4K before. Right. So. Unfortunately, you did a lot of them in the in the dark. I did. The fact that you it was like, dude, start earlier. Like, what dude, time were you starting? I was starting, you know, four thirty. We had a.m. Yeah. Oh, okay. You can't. Start it, when that. we did the death I guess stage, if it takes you twenty one hours. It, or we started the death stage at four thirty with that guy Emil. How cool was he? He was super cool. Is it, and sixty five years yeah. old. Yeah. Kicked our ass. Going he up totally up. kicked your ass. Yes. Yeah. I wasn't going to say that, but since you said it, I'm going to no, agree. No, listen, I'm, I'm, I, I didn't say I was a great writer or anything. I'm just telling you, the guy was, was unbelievable. I mean, just, uh, and what an amazing spirit. His brother rode on the tour uh, back in the 70s. Huh. Yeah. So he comes from good stock. Yeah. And yeah. then the other guy we rode with, he was a world champion, uh, world penny fathing champion. The other guy we rode with, the, with the mustache right, the next right. day. <laughs> who did who direct you guys were about to head Marco. the wrong way and he's like no 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 you gotta yeah, yeah, go, you, go were, you were about to go north and he's like oh no 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 you gotta go no south. no no it's espana it's espana yeah. oh okay which way are we going oh we're yeah. going that way oh okay <laughs> yeah yeah all right buddy thank you for doing this yeah thank you good luck with everything thank you thanks for tuning in to the forward podcast like uh like i said at the top of the show if you have anything you want to say, if you have a suggestion, please, God knows I need suggestions, um, or questions, or concerns, or criticisms, or whatever, let me know. Send me an email. Send it to theforwardpodcast at wedosport.com. I know it's long. I know it's a little confusing. Theforwardpodcast at wedo, W-E-D-U, sport singular.com the forward podcast at we do sport.com 